This is a Federal News Network podcast. It's been five years since Congress started giving the Defense Department new authorities to hire cyber professionals quickly. But DOD is finally putting those tools to use in a big way. This year, it's onboarded thousands of new employees using direct hire authorities. And the department has made a big dent in how long it takes to complete that hiring process. Federal News Network's Jared Serbu's got an update on DOD's efforts to build its cyber workforce. Defense officials say so far in fiscal 2021, 32% of their new hires for cyber positions used direct hiring authorities. In between 2019 and this year, those authorities were used to onboard 4,200 new employees. Those provisions let DOD components recruit new talent without going through the government's traditional job advertisement and competitive hiring procedures. And Veronica Hinton, the acting Deputy Assistant Secretary of Defense for Civilian Personnel Policy, says they've been quite helpful. The department is very thankful and appreciative of the direct hire authorities uh, because they enable us to get through uh, the hurdles and the inefficiencies in some of the Title V hiring authorities and really get to where is the talent how do we bring them in? How do we attract them without having to go through the overly burdensome hiring process that we had? So it has been – they have proven to be an effective tool, and I would couple that with the Cyber Accepted Service Authority that we have that we're growing that, that has proven to be another effective uh, personnel tool. Congress granted DOD its latest batch of direct hiring authorities in the 2020 Defense Authorization Bill as part of a provision that consolidated several of the existing hiring workarounds that were already in federal law. The new law also created a categorical exemption to traditional hiring rules that lets DOD do direct hires for any cyber workforce position. But that authority is set to terminate in 2025. It's only meant to serve as a bridge until DOD fully establishes a new personnel system for its cyber workforce called the Cyber Accepted Service. Congress authorized CES in 2016, and DOD has been relatively slow to implement it. But officials say 10 DOD organizations have now transitioned their cyber workforces into the new system. Army Cyber Command is set to become the 11th next year. Hinton says in all, 6,500 people have transitioned to the Cyber Accepted Service so far. Cyber Accepted Service has given us incredible flexibilities that aren't resident in traditional uh, civil service authorities. In particular, we have found great use in um, the hiring authorities that are associated with Cyber Accepted Service, that ability to target our recruitment opportunities to, to get the talent that we need. Another piece of the Cyber Accepted Service that has been beneficial has been the compensation authorities. In particular, we have recently rolled out targeted local market supplements that enable us to uh, compensate at a higher level uh, for seven areas. And so it gives us that ability to compete with the industry through those compensation flexibilities, help us get at that targeted skill set that we need. Additionally, with Cyber Accepted Service, it gives us some authorities to think about how we how we classify work, how we how we organize work, how we describe work, and and, and how we look at the qualifications associated with the uh, individuals that we need. But the Accepted Service still makes up a relatively small share of the department's total cyber workforce. As of now, there are 65,000 civilian positions across the department that are coded as cyber jobs. And those classifications themselves are due for an update. A new DOD instruction that's currently in the final review process would require every DOD position that involves cyber work to be coded with the work roles the department has defined under its new Defense Cyber Workforce Framework. And a forthcoming manual will set department-wide qualification standards for all of those positions. The new policies will also require DOD components to collect and report 
report more data about vacancies and key cyber workforce positions. John Sherman, the acting DOD chief information officer, says that'll let the department do a better job of strategic planning, including deciding the right mix of uniformed and civilian cyber personnel across its total force. We have roughly, as we've got the skill sets coded, 65,000 civilians and 67,000 military. Uh, In terms of the mix, the military brings longer consistency, time on target there. The civilians, you may have a little bit different turnover and, of course, the different richness of skill set and experiences perhaps from industry or academia or elsewhere. My personal view as acting CIO is that this is about the right mix we have now in terms of about the half and half. We do have certain skill sets that are very applicable out in the civilian workforce. Cyber operators, for example, is one of the coded ones. Network assessors. Jobs that could get very quickly picked up in the private sector. And using this framework blocking and tackling we have, we can watch as these get, when the vacancies get above a certain area, that we can start amping up the hiring and using the cyber accepted service authorities you all have granted to us to start doing things like targeted local market supplement for living in the national capital region and so on. So we try to use that to modulate. Lieutenant General Dennis Crawl, the top IT official for the military's joint staff, says he agrees that 50-50 mix of military and civilian personnel serves DOD well. But he says there are aspects of both types of government service that aren't necessarily well suited to the types of employees the department needs to recruit, based on some of his conversations with those prospective hires and private sector IT leaders. The number one area that, that, that came back and feedback to me was people want to live where they want to live. The idea of moving to some place they don't want to live, no matter what other feature is offered, is apparently quite unattractive. And if you look at some of the, the hubs that we have to offer, that's going to be a challenge for us. There are some interesting solutions, given the work and the nature that maybe we need to explore about creating spaces where that work can be done literally anywhere as long as security, you know, environment is set for that. But living in the community they want to live in seemed to be a strong driving factor. Uh, The other one was in team composition. The hierarchy of the government isn't something that's that's really motivating to them at all. They want a flat organization where, you know, everyone has equal input into driving an outcome. Uh, For many of them, wearing the uniform was not attractive. They like working hours from noon till 3 a.m. is their prime working hours. And again... Does it matter if productivity is there? Uh, Our organizations don't normally look like that. Jared Serbu, Federal News Radio, part of the Federal News Network. Check out Jared's story at federalnewsnetwork.com. We now bring you a special presentation from our friends at WEPA. Shane, thanks for joining us. Can you tell us about WEPA and your new podcast? Mike, great to see you again. The podcast series, Lessons in Leadership, what we're trying to do is, is take a deeper dive, a different angle into the conversation around leadership with great leaders at all levels of government. Uh, since the 1900s, leadership has been studied in a serious and academic way. Uh, great man theory, the leader-follower theory, the inspirational leader, transformational leader, all of these are backward-looking um, development of styles, looking at an individual, figuring out how they did leadership, and then translating it into a form that we can use today to learn, to perhaps emulate, copy. But great leaders, they have more than one style. I think, I truly think that a great leader can adapt and transform 
into the role that's needed at that time. So what we're trying to do is, is talk to great leaders and go a level deeper. Tell us about your, a story in your past. Tell us an inspiration that really affected your ability to lead others. And this certainly applies in the uh, federal space. The federal government, it's over 2 million employees. Great leaders are throughout the federal government, both at the top and the middle ranks. And what we want to do is ask them to pull inside their memory, pull inside their personal history, find those moments in time when they were changed, they were inspired, they learned something about leadership from another person, perhaps it was uh, from themselves, and they brought that to the workplace, and they inspired other and became great leaders. So that's what we're trying to do with the podcast. Okay, so I, I get that you wanted to start with leadership, but what makes leadership such an important topic right now for federal workers? Great question. Leadership today is tested like never before. Um, today's, if I had to put a leadership style, if I had to put names to it, we hear about um, empathetic, we hear transparent, we hear uh, inspirational. So today we have COVID, we have a down economy, we have people, we have social uh, injustice that we're dealing with. There are many new factors. And it's drawing like never before on a leader's ability to pull from within themselves, and adapt to the current change. So leadership today is almost brand new again. We're taking all kinds of different styles, attributes, learnings that leaders have. They're looking at the current situation that we're in and understanding how do I move groups of people? How do I move my employees? How do I inspire? How do I get them to the next best place? So I think leadership today, this conversation uh, is extremely relevant, perhaps more relevant than it's been in several decades. You know, we talk about an employee's personal route to growth, but what role does the management side have in this? I think in the federal government, it's, it's a little bit different than it is in the private sector. Uh, My father was a civilian federal employee. Uh, He joined the federal government in the 1960s. John Kennedy, he was inspired by ask not what your country can do for you, but what you can do for your country. He had opportunities to go in the private sector. That notion of service inspired him. It inspired an entire generation. I would like to think that call to service which is unique in, in the federal space, in the government space, still exists today. Well, that about says it all. But is anything else you'd want the audience to know about you personally or WEPA as an, as an organization? Uh, I have been uh, around the group affinity insurance world for um, three decades. Uh, led This is my second uh, major organization that I've led. And I will tell you that we impart this feeling, uh, you mentioned it, Mike, about service, this notion. We serve those who serve. And uh, I will tell you that it's refreshing. It's a blessing to be there. And I have so much respect for civilian federal employees 
at every level of government. In this podcast, we're hoping to talk to leaders which are similarly inspired and can share their learnings over a lifetime. And uh, this will be useful information uh, for anybody in government service. Grab a 30-day free trial of Live by Live Plus, and you'll get unlimited skips, commercial-free music, and all of the podcasts and live streaming events you can handle. Visit livexlive.com slash podcast one to learn more and start your free trial.